<clears throat> Christ is risen. He is risen Guys, I have to tell you, it is so cold, I can barely feel my fingers. I feel like a polar bear set the thermostat this morning. Before you think I'm insane, that's an inside joke for all the gentlemen. I was encouraged last night to try and weave in a bear joke, so... Uh, my name is Jonathan Swindle, and last week, Pastor mentioned we had a service where I was commissioned in as the senior associate pastor, and Seth Putnam was commissioned in as our new worship pastor, and I want to take a moment and just say thank you to you as a community. So many, no less than 20 people have come up to me and said something along the lines of, congratulations, or man, we think you're going to do so great, or this is going to be so easy for you, or how are you feeling about all of this? And you guys have taken a genuine interest, and you've made space for myself and for Seth in these new roles. So thank you for being the kind of community that even when change is uncomfortable, doesn't resist or balk at it, but says, okay, God might be at work here, and we care more about the people than we do how this might disrupt what is normal for us. So thank you guys. Also, if you're new to this community and the bear jokes are new to you, everything is new to you today, uh, I just want to say welcome. It is great to have you. We desire to be a place that are welcome and opening for anybody and everyone in this city who would feel drawn into this space. And we know that there are tons of good churches. We don't want everybody in the city at this church. We want the people whom the Holy Spirit is drawing here. And if you are Searching for a new home church on October the 30th, which is, I don't know, about six weeks from now, we will be having a new life next, which is one hour right after service where we provide lunch, we provide childcare, we'll tell you a little bit about our story, about our mission and our vision, and then we want to hear from you. What are you looking for? What are the things that are meaningful to you in a community of faith? And give you a chance to interact with us and ask questions. So I'd encourage you to get online, sign up for that free meal, free child care. There's really no excuse because it's free. So looking forward to seeing a number of you there. Today will be another installment. We're right smack dab in the middle of our series on Nehemiah. Two weeks ago, I spoke from Nehemiah 2 about what it looked like for Nehemiah to carry the burden of the Lord. Last week, Pastor Jade brought to us a message from Nehemiah chapter 4 about how to resist and oppose the enemy. Well, today, we're going to backtrack and go to chapter 3, but it's, it's a little unique because chapter 3 is happening throughout uh, chapters 2 and chapter 6. It's something that most scholars believe was added after the fact as an account of who all was involved from the end of chapter 2 through the middle of chapter 6. And so it might seem a little odd that we're going back, but not really. Today we're going to talk about how the people responded to Nehemiah's call and invitation into the work that God was doing in the city of Jerusalem. So in just a moment, we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 2, verse 20, and we're going to read through verse 8 of chapter 3. So go ahead and turn there. While you are, I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would touch my mouth and touch the minds and the hearts of all of us. That we would hear your words, that we would hear your call, that we would hear not a shame uh, or guilt or an ounce of uh, conviction that is not by way of your Holy Spirit, but that we would hear the gentleness of your touch on our hearts and in our minds, and that you would empower us to respond. Empower us to respond to the call 
of God today. We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Together, God's people say, Amen. 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 All right, so the end of chapter 2 into verse or into chapter 3, I will ask you in advance to bear with me. You'll understand why in just a moment. There are a lot of names, all right, y'all? Here we go. Verse 20, I answered them, Nehemiah says, by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, he's talking to Sanballat and uh, his friends, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Into chapter 3, this is the account. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanoth. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Mesh- Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bena, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under their supervisors. The Jesana gate was repaired by Joida, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besedea. They laid its beams and put its doors with bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by the men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. We're stopping there because I'm tired of pronouncing names, uh, not because those are all of the names. And you might be thinking, how in the world is a message going to come from this? And frankly, I'm asking the Holy Spirit the same thing. But I do believe, as Steve Reynolds encouraged us men this weekend, that every word in this book has something that the Lord wants to share with us. And so out of these names, I think that there are some points to be made. And I do think that there is a word for us here at New Life Midtown today. The first thing I want to bring to our attention is that Nehemiah's faithfulness created space for others to be united in God's work. Nehemiah's faithfulness created space for others to be united in God's work. There are a list of names here, most of which are really difficult to pronounce, And most of us, when we're reading these kinds of passages, skip over them in our devotional time. And I'm not here to point fingers or fault you. I do the same thing, if I'm honest, most of the time. But I think that there is something powerful about reading the names of very ordinary, otherwise unknown people who collectively join together to do something supernatural. Because most of us are more like these people than the names like Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, Paul, Jesus, certainly. Most of us are going to live our lives and be faithful and do the next best thing and do the things that are right in front of us that we feel like we're called to do. We're going to make some mistakes. 
We're going to make some great choices, hopefully. We're going to have some moments where we feel empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're going to have a bunch of moments where we're not even sure, God, are you with me? But in the end, these names are recorded for coming together to build a wall. And how did they get there? They got there because of the faithfulness of Nehemiah responding to God's call, which then opened up space for them to participate in what God was doing. Apart from Nehemiah's response to God, those men in Jericho would have remained in Jericho. They may have never gone back to the city of Jerusalem because what is Jerusalem? It's desolate. Its walls are destroyed. Why would we ever go back? So they're going to spend the rest of their lives working in Jerusalem. The people who were already or in Jericho, the people who were already in the city of Jerusalem, very well may have spent the rest of their lives living with their heads low, living in shame, trying to make perfume and gold and do all of these things that really just feel meaningless. When your city is vulnerable and you're living in shame, but the response of one man named Nehemiah opened up space for others to be brought into the middle of what God is doing. I served for a number of years under a man named Mark Rutland, who was the president of Southeastern University and Oral Roberts University. And some of the people in the room sat through a graduation where President Rutland would give one of the speeches there at the graduation ceremony. And every time I was with him for nine graduation, nine years of graduation, so 18 essentially, He would say this every time. Students, you are like a turtle on a fence post. And like every one of them, we're all going, yeah? (laughs) How so? It is impossible for you to get where you are by yourself. A turtle on a fence post cannot get there by itself. And that's a silly image to think about, but it has stuck with me all these years later that every one of us have come to faith in Christ. And Rachel just mentioned this. She just alluded to this. None of us have come to Christ on our own, but by the faithfulness of people who have gone before us. And their faithfulness then makes space for us to be brought into what God is doing. I said this a couple of weeks ago in a message. We wouldn't even have this apart from the faithfulness of human hands. Most of the people in this book who were called felt incredibly inadequate. And before their moment of calling, were doing incredibly mundane things. Just working, just living life, just trying to be faithful to their family, just trying to treat their employees well, or like David on the backside of a field, just trying to keep the animals away from the sheep. The last thing on his mind is being the king of God's people. Many of us find ourselves in a place like that today. We're just trying to keep our head above water. God, I don't think I can handle anything else. But I want to encourage you today. It might just be your faithfulness in the little things that opens up space for other people to be brought into what God is doing. And here's the key you might never know it's happened. Teachers in the room, you never know who's in your classroom. Medical professionals, you never know whose body you're working to heal. Mental health professionals, 
You never know what's on the other side of those who you're treating for depression or anxiety or working through grief with them. You never know who's on the other side. You home builders and people who work with your hands, pray and bless those things. Those who change oil, pray over those cars. Pray for safety. Pray that those cars would just turn into church parking lots. Turn away from the bars and the other places. And Lord Jesus, just turn those steering wheels. Jesus, take the wheel. Hallelujah. Sidron, I gave you a new prayer. But in all seriousness, we never know. When we say yes, it opens up opportunities for other to, others to be brought into God's work. I was thinking about my own story. I graduated college in Central Florida in the spring of 2009 with an accounting and finance degree. How many of you remember what happened the year prior, 2008, financial crisis? I was essentially a straight-A student, couldn't find a job. I could not find a job. I was painting my parents' rental properties the week after graduation. It was very humbling. And honestly, in hindsight, I'm, I'm glad that I even had that. And I was recounting to Steve Randall's a little bit of my story on the drive up. And about the end of July, I got a phone call from the previous director of worship at Southeastern University where I had just graduated from. And he said, hey, Dr. Rutland, the president of Southeastern, is leaving to go work at Oral Roberts University, and he wants us to come, but we've just taken a job in Jacksonville, so we're trying to work out these details of how we're going to fly in and fly out. But I told Dr. Rutland, the only way I would consider doing it is if he made space for you to come and you said yes to go be boots on the ground and run things. So we did, or I did. This was before Bonnie, but funny enough, ironically, she ended up at ORU the same semester through a story of events or that made no sense. You understand. <clears throat> I didn't sleep a whole lot this weekend, guys. <clears throat> what happened? I was essentially despairing. Couldn't find a job in my field. And it's funny, at this point, I've never had a job that was really in the field of study that I went to school for. But someone thought about me and responded with a yes and it made space for me to be brought into God's story in a unique way. So over the course of six years working at ORU, Pastor Jade and Christy are saying yes to come work and uh, facilitate ropes every year. While I'm working at ORU, a friendship develops. We end up working together once a year for a couple of years, not even really recognizing one another for about three years. And then over time, a friendship is built Pastor Jaden extends an invitation to Bonnie and myself to come here. And then, as of last week, a new season for us, transitioning out of full-time worship and into this new position, which has now made space for another family in our community. You never know how the simple yeses, simple acts of faithfulness, engraft other people into the story of what God is doing. Nehemiah's faithfulness created space for others, but I want to ask you a question today. Whose yes are you the beneficiary of? Whose yes has made space for you? And we're not going to take time and journal right now. We did that at men's retreat. I'm very pressed for time, but I want to ask you, take time and think about those people. Consider them. Thank them. And then think about the people who your faithfulness has made space for. 
God is doing a big thing among us, friends. It's far bigger than any of us could ask or imagine. And our yes is meaningful even if it seems small. Number two, the whole project was a partnership of the willing. A partnership of the willing. This is the way ministry works always. God doesn't twist our arm. God doesn't manipulate. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't force. He sends out invitations and says, I'm looking for someone to respond. Who is willing? Well, Nehemiah was willing, but who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a Jewish boy by blood who grew up not in Israel, but in the Persian kingdom. And somehow or another, Nehemiah found his way into the king's palace as a cupbearer. And Nehemiah felt a burden upon a report from some other Jewish brothers who had come into the king's palace. Nehemiah hears something and receives the burden. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And then what happens? Something is birthed inside of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. Well, actually, not back to Jerusalem. He had never been to Jerusalem. He goes to his homeland, from which he had never been, and he casts a call and says, this is what God has said. This is how God has shown himself faithful. Let's get to work. And what happens? Men and women from Jericho, from within the city of Jerusalem, from all the surrounding regions, start responding to the call. Here's a list of people who begin responding to the call. It's priests. There are Levites. There are temple workers who don't have a title. There are people who are perfume makers and goldsmiths, people who are city rulers. Who's not mentioned? Stonemasons. There are no stonemasons mentioned. In other words, these are people who were not skilled or trained for this call. They were willing to respond to this call. Ministry is about responding to the invitation. God is looking for the willing. God is sending out invitations and calling and saying, I just need your yes. I just need space inside your heart and your mind and your will and your emotions. And I will touch your hands and I will touch your mouth. The whole project was made possible by the response of the willing. I was reading in one of the commentaries. And he ended the whole section on chapter 3 with the phrase, this endeavor was a partnership of the willing. And it hit me. Everything in God is a partnership of the willing. Everything in God is a partnership of the willing. And I want you to hear this. There is a way of hearing a message like this and it feeling like, holy cow, this is too much. So I want you to hear the right measure of responsibility. And and I've got this phrase that I'm borrowing. I'm I'm just straight up stealing it from Chris Green, okay? (laughs) But, But here it is. And I think this is one of the most profound things that can unlock how does our response and our free will work in and with the work of a sovereign God to make things happen in the earth. So here's how I'll say it. None of us can keep God from being God to ourselves or to anyone else. We don't have that much control. That's right. 
None of us can keep God from being God. But how we respond or don't respond does affect how God has to be God to us and other people. We can't keep God's goodness, his mercy, his love. None of us have that much power. And thank God for it. That God is God and God alone is God. But what we do matters. Because what we do or don't do determines how God has to come to the people around us. Here's an example. If I am faithful to my family, if I am faithful to my wife, faithful to my kids, faithful to this community, God's work comes through me in a particular way. But if I'm unfaithful and I harm you, then God has to come to you as healing, as restoration, as reparation before the work can continue on. And here's what's wild. This whole book, Nehemiah, the whole story is showing us this. The people who came before Nehemiah were unfaithful. Why are the walls torn down at all? God told them time and time again, don't turn your eyes away from me. Don't marry outside of the people because they will pull you into their way of serving their gods. Don't do it. So the story goes on. They do it. Unfaithfulness by the people. Now their city's destroyed. So now God has to recruit someone, Nehemiah, to recruit others to rebuild the wall, which wouldn't have happened if they were faithful in the first place. None of us can keep God from being God. None of us can keep his goodness and his love and his mercy bound up. We don't have that power. But our responsibility matters. So hear it rightly. Don't feel an, an unhelpful unright amount of responsibility or burden that will crush you. The weight of the world is not on your shoulders. But the people around you are counting on you. And what you do matters. Here's something else that's interesting. The priests are mentioned first. Verse 1, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. The priests go first, but ironically, they're not mentioned for doing anything priestly. They're not doing anything priestly. Priests are one who pray prayers, who light incense, who make sacrifices, who represent God to the people and the people to God. Their ultimate calling is to serve God by serving the people. Amen. But you know what those priests recognized? That in that moment, the way that they could best serve the people yeah. is to get their hands dirty. There are some of us in the room that have very clear callings. You know exactly, you think you know exactly <laughs> to, what, to what God has called you. And here's the thing. We need to open our imaginations and allow the creativity of the Holy Spirit to inspire how we think we might should do those things. What if the priests had said, yes, we bless this effort, Nehemiah, and we bless it from afar? They didn't do that. They said, the best way we can serve God and serve his people right now is to roll up our sleeves and to do something that most of them had probably never done before. There was a humility in it. A rolling up their sleeves was not something that priests were known to do because their calling usually didn't demand that. But there are times when God is calling us to utilize our position, our relationships, our skills, or just 
the resource of you to step out and be willing and say, you know what? This is not the most comfortable thing in the world for me, but I'm here. And I will say yes and see what God does on the other side of my yes. Here's the thing. We tend to think God calls us primarily according to our gifts, but that is actually very rare in Scripture. Skills are rarely, this is on the screen, skills are rarely the sole or even primary qualifier for how God chooses people. Think about Abraham, Moses, Nehemiah, Esther, Jeremiah, Peter, the list goes on. As I was thinking about this, there are two very clear examples where it seems that people were chosen or were operating in an area that was corresponding to a direct skill. And I'm sure that there are many, many others that Steve Reynolds and some others who are more Bible um, proficient than I am will know. But right off the bat, I came up with two names, Saul and Solomon. Saul and Solomon were in the work that they were skilled to do. And both of them left damage in their wake. Now hear me, I'm in no way saying we shouldn't pursue honing our skills. But I think we have idolized working in our sweet spot to the point of we have no imagination of how God might want to use us beyond the things that we feel really good at doing. So many times, guys, I cannot tell you how many times I have heard from people coming and looking for a church. We just want to be in a place to use our gifts. Yes, we want you to operate. I mean, Ephesians talks about this. We want you to operate in your gifts to edify the body, to build up the body, absolutely. But not exclusively. Not exclusively. I actually think some of the times in our life where the deepest character work, the the greenest fruit, if you will, comes from our lives is when we're doing things we don't feel great at doing. Paul talks about this in the beginning of 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about how God astoundingly is at work in weakness in a way that just doesn't seem to be prolific in Scripture in strength. That there's something about our weaknesses when they're offered to the Lord, our availability and our weaknesses, that God can do some incredible things with us. So continue to hone your strengths. Your day job will be really hard if you're not working in an area of strength. But the particular specific things God calls you to do Open your eyes a little bit wider. And one last thought on this before we end and come to the table. Talk a little bit about unity. We live in a time where it seems like self-awareness and self-knowledge is prolific. And I I love the Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and Strength Finder and all of these things. But I, I felt a warning as I was preparing for this message. And actually this morning when I was, I was praying... And what I felt the Lord impress on me was some of us know so much about ourselves that we don't need to pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. We know so much about ourselves. We know, God, I I know I do this, and I know I I do this, and these are the ways that I'm working on it with my coach and my psychologist and all the things. Guys, I... If you know me, you know I am not opposed to those things. I am very for them. But there is nothing that can replace you search me, 
oh God. There are things inside of me I don't know. There are sins, proclivities inside of me I am unaware of. And the converse is true. There are gifts inside of me that I will never know to look for because they're not in my personality type. Because I haven't been taught that they're part of my profile. So don't give those things up. But please invite the Holy Spirit into those things and expect God to point out some things in you, mostly good I'm talking about right now, that you are unaware of. You have gifts. Number three, unity in the assignment always requires personal sacrifice for the sake of the whole. I mentioned a moment ago, priests, Levites, temple servants, rulers, regional administrators, goldsmiths, perfumers, the list goes on. We didn't read them all, but they're all there. They sacrificed. They left their jobs. They set their jobs aside for the task of building the wall. Now, I'm not asking all of you to do that and come serve in the church. That's not the point. The point is that there are times when we are called to do something and there's no way to do it apart from personal sacrifice. Setting some things that are really good down and aside for a time or a season to fulfill what God has asked you to do. There are times to say no to things here in the church. Please do not hear this as a massive ministry call here in the church. Though, if the Holy Spirit is touching on that, respond. But this is much bigger than Midtown. This is caring about the flourishing of Colorado Springs and the Church of Colorado Springs and the health and the prosperity of the city to which God has called us and planted us in. There is no way to have unity in the church and unity among the believers without a measure of personal sacrifice. What were these people united around? Was it their ideas of the Persian Empire? Was it their theology? They all agreed that God was doing the exact same thing, that God always operates in the same way. Did they agree on every measure of doctrine? No. They weren't even united around their skills. None of these people had the same skills. They're working shoulder, by, shoulder to shoulder with people who don't do the same things as them. They were united around a common call and invitation to join the work of God. Those of us sitting in the room might have nothing else in common other than we all sit under the banner of the name of Jesus Amen. and we are all responding to the same call by the same Holy Spirit. Every one of us in the room will disagree on something. Something minor, something major. It is what it is. Unity does not demand uniformity. Unity is recognizing that what is best for the whole is what we should pursue. And that we can set aside really important things to us in order to respond to the call of God. And as we come and turn our eyes to close and turn our eyes to the table, Seth, if you would come and communion attendants prepare to come. I want to point your eyes to verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. So Drawn gave me a big when I read this. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Now we can assume and presume all we want about why, I've thought of a bunch of reasons. Let me share some with you because you might identify with some. Pride. 
we're too good for that. Or pride, we're usually the ones giving instruction. What if they don't want to do it the same way? I don't want to work for somebody who doesn't want to do it my way. Pride is a, a reason many of us don't do a lot of things. Discomfort. Priests rolling up their sleeves to work on a wall is anything but comfortable. Perfume makers rolling up their sleeves to build gates is not comfortable. It's doing something where you feel vulnerable. You feel exposed. You feel like, I don't have the skills. Are they going to think I'm silly? Like, what if I do it wrong and the gate falls over? What if my section of the wall falls over in six months? Are they going to look at me and go, oh my gosh, we should have never recruited that guy. Discomfort. Assuming failure. What if the, the nobles of Tekoa thought, this project will never succeed, so I don't want my name attached to it? Assuming others would do it in their place. That they are excused because they are nobility. That my job in the kingdom of God is earning money, not putting hands to work. That God has gifted me to be a benefactor or someone who can give checks, but I don't have to actually do anything. The work I'm doing Monday through Friday is really important. My presence is what matters most. There were a lot of people who didn't help with the wall. But there's only one kind of people that are mentioned. And it's nobility in all of the wrong ways. Fortunate enough for us, we are called nobility. Jesus calls us his own. We are co-heirs with the living Christ, friends. Amen. There is no nobility above Jesus Christ. And we have brought, been brought into his place. But here's the thing. That kind of nobility is not the kind of noble that Jesus is. He's the kind of nobility who gets down on his knees and rolls up his sleeves and washes our feet. He's the kind of nobility that is, who is willing to be led outside of the city and be crucified so that everyone across the city and beyond could then come into his kingdom. The kind of nobility that we are called to is the exact opposite of this kind of nobility. We are called to set our preferences aside, to set sometimes even our skills and our good works aside for the sake of the whole. Stand with me, if you will. I was thinking about this. We're going to read in just a moment from Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to come to the table. But right in front of you is modeled a kind of ministry and nobility, communion attendance. These wonderful eight people here, of which one is my wife are modeling for you the kind of ministry to which we are called. What are they doing? They are holding with open hands the gifts of God so that the gifts of God might be redistributed to the people who need it most. This is what God is calling all of us to. And the great temptation is to want to say, I'm going to take it first because what if there's not enough? What if there's not enough for me? And if you'll notice, these communion attendants never receive first. They always partake last. And maybe they're not even aware of this, but this is an act of trust that there is enough of God, even if these elements run out, that there is enough in God for every one of us. And when we first choose to give it away, we are living like the noble Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Philippians chapter 2, then we'll come to the table. You've heard these verses a thousand times. Hear them with fresh ears. Holy Spirit, open our ears. Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, notice what is common. The Spirit, nothing else. If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reveal Jesus to us once again, that there is a great calling in this house, there's a great calling over this city. We pray that you would open our eyes to the ways where we have been living selfishly, where we have been living first for self-preservation and then trying to give out of what little is left over, ways where we have excused ourselves because we don't think we have what it takes. Or maybe we've excused ourselves because in previous seasons we've given and we've been burned. Holy Spirit, in this moment, touch every one of us. We invite your conviction, but we also ask for your empowerment. Church, this morning, we're going to come to the table of the Lord. Exit out the left side of your rows and come. And the communion attendants will give you the body and the blood, and we will go back to our seats and partake together. Come to the table of the Lord.
the last are coming forward, one of the things that the church has always recognized about communion is that this is in some ways a family meal. That we're not just coming forward, us and Jesus, us coming to the face of Jesus, though that, that is happening, are coming forward, and this is one of the reasons we love the coming forward element rather than just bringing them to you, is by coming forward, you are saying, I want to be here for you. Like my coming forward is signifying that I'm part of the greater family that Jesus is building. And when I come forward, I'm saying, I am doing all that is within me to be a reliable witness, a reliable presence of Christ in the earth. And to the people around you, they see you and they say, this is someone I can lean on. When you come forward, it's more than just you and Jesus. It's telling us that I identify with the body of Christ, that I am one of those who am responding to the call and I will be here for you. So in this moment, before we receive, look to your neighbor and say, I am here for you. Not exclusively you, but I'm here for you when you need me. <clears throat> On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Church, let us receive this morning of the body of Christ broken for you and me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, let us receive the blood of Christ shed for the remission of sins. Take and drink. Amen. Thanks be to God for these good gifts. Let's sing the doxology and be reminded that every good gift, including the person next to you, comes from God. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him. Let us go this morning as willing ones, willing to say yes, even to the things that feel daunting that the Spirit might ask. Go in the peace of Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit. You are dismissed.